You will need a Bible. Open back up to John chapter 5. There's some notes in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Kids are excited to miss the sermon this morning. There's wooting and whooping. I like it. I like having the kids in here. And uh, we had a training over the weekend. We had a, a group of disaster relief uh, Southern Baptist workers here. They spent the night here the last couple of nights uh, training for chaplaincy when we send out disaster relief teams. And Joe Stevens brought them down this morning, and we had our little yellow pieces of paper, and they said, who sits over here? And I said, this is the charismatic section. This is where the dancing happens in the sanctuary. So, John chapter 5. This is a new chapter in the Gospel of John, and it's really a new section in the Gospel of John, if you'd like to think about it that way. Up to this point, everything in John's Gospel has been a bit introductory, introducing us to Jesus, describing the early stages of his ministry, talking about some of his early disciples. But in chapter 5, there's a bit of a shift. And the shift is, from this point on in the Gospel of John, the story very much centers around conflict. And the conflict is between Jesus and a group of people that John is going to refer to and already has referred to as the Jews. John mentions the Jews 71 times in this gospel. Almost all of them, not all, but almost all refer to the religious leaders in Jerusalem who actively oppose Jesus. So we see in this, in this uh, chapter uh, a transition. Introductions are gone. Now we're beginning to think about the conflict between Jesus and the Jews. This conflict in John 5, in the first part of John 5, happens at a feast. John does not tell us which feast Jesus was attending. He doesn't mention it. And he doesn't mention the disciples, which is interesting. They really don't play any part in this particular story. And scholars debate, did he go without them? Did he leave them up in Galilee and he went to the feast in Jerusalem alone. We don't really know, and we don't know which feast it was exactly. There's a number of possibilities when you think about the Jewish feasts, and I'll put some of these up on the screen. The Jews would travel to Jerusalem for Passover and for Pentecost, for Tabernacles, for Purim, for the Feast of Dedication. These were all sort of popular pilgrimage feasts where people would actually go to Jerusalem. The first three Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, it was actually law at the time if you were an adult Jewish male and you lived within about a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem, they expected you. You were obliged to travel to Jerusalem and to observe the feast. If you lived outside of that, you got a little bit of grace, but pilgrims would come and Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem for one of these feasts. John doesn't tell us which one, so we don't really need to know for the story that we're looking at. I do want to mention one thing before we jump into the big idea, and it's this. The words of John 5-4 are not found in the oldest manuscripts of John's gospel. Now, if you are reading out of the ESV like I was, you probably didn't notice earlier that we went directly from verse 3 to verse 5, and there was no verse 4. You might have not been paying attention, and you might not have noticed that in the ESV, there's a footnote and it just says, some manuscripts insert holier in part, and then they have sort of another verse. 
different Bible translations handle this differently. Some of you may read out of the, the CSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. That Bible includes verse 4 up in the text, but it puts it in brackets. And those brackets are designed to say to you, like, hey, pay attention here. Something funny kind of going on. The King James Version includes it in the text. If you have a King James and you're reading out of King James, you thought, why did he skip a verse? Why did he go from verse 3 to 5 and you didn't notice anything funny or strange at all? I just want you to understand the oldest manuscripts don't include these words. And so let me say a very short word of explanation and then promise you that later in John's gospel, we're going to talk about this on a little bit bigger scale. We're going to come back to this issue. You understand, we don't have the original documents of any of the New Testament books. What we have are copies and copies of copies and copies of copies of copies. And in these old documents, there are no chapters and verses. Okay, No chapters, no verses. Sometimes there's not even spaces or paragraphs or anything like that. It's just one solid long block of letters and you read through and you sort of figure it out. Our chapters and verses were added by a Greek scholar in the 1500s and they just sort of have got locked in and they're in place and we just all kind of stick with the same thing so we can find our way around the biblical text, but they're not there in the original. And when you look at these old manuscripts, right, these old documents written in Greek for the New Testament and some of the other translations we have in other ancient languages, most of the oldest manuscripts don't have what we would call John 5.4. It's just not there. It just goes right from one to the other. If you look at some of the, the ones that are closer to us in time, older in time, or maybe you would say uh, more recent in time, that verse pops up. But if you look at the oldest and the best manuscripts, that little verse and the little explanation note is just not there. And so we're just going to acknowledge that. And we're going to come back to it, I promise you. We're going to come back to it in John chapter 8. I just wanted to acknowledge I didn't skip a verse, and we're going to deal with that, that issue when we get to John 8 a little bit later. Here's the big idea of this story, and I'll be honest with you. You can put verse 4 in, or you can take it out, or you can put it in a footnote or brackets. It doesn't change the big idea. And the big idea is this. Jesus is the eternal Word of God who took on flesh so that He might die for our sins. We've already seen the idea that he's the eternal word of God. He was in the beginning. He was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning. He created everything in the beginning. Now we add this wrinkle that he came and he took on flesh that he might die for our sins. When you get down to the end of our passage, verse 17, it may not seem like a very shocking thing that Jesus says about himself in John 5, 17. To the people who heard him say it, it was extremely shocking. And it just sent them into a tizzy. They were outraged. But it's something we've already seen in John. If you just flip back and look at John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And you can jump down to verse 14. You know that the Word is Jesus because it says the Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. So we've seen this claim that Jesus is God, but now we add this wrinkle. We begin to see this shift in the Gospel of John in chapter 5, this conflict between Jesus and the Jews. He's the Word of God who took on flesh that he might die for our sins. Now, how many of you have ever heard of an evangelist named Peter Popoff? Anybody know this guy? Some of you are just laughing at the name. Some of you actually know who this guy is. This guy's a clown. 
And I'd never heard of him, but I read about him this week and found out some things about him. He's a, a faith healer in the 70s and the 80s. He would hold these big rallies and people would pay to come and they, of course they would take an offering and people would walk in and he would claim to heal people from all sorts of things. And his big, his big trick that he was known for initially is that he would call out a name. Lo and behold, that person just happened to be in the audience somewhere. How did he know that? The person would stand up and come to the front and Popoff would tell you your address. He would say, ah, oh, I see you live at such and such. And people were just amazed. This was fantastic. So Popoff was exposed by a man named James Randi. James Randi was a magician by trade, but he sort of became famous and rich by exposing magicians and in particular psychics. And he would sort of set up these sting operations. And it was sort of big TV back in the day. He would set his sights on a particular magician or psychic. And then he would put them in a situation where he knew they would fail. And then he would sort of say, look, I told you, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's not real. These guys are charlatans. Don't give them your money. And he was buddies with Johnny Carson. And Johnny Carson and James Randi decided, let's see what's going on with Peter Popoff. This guy is too good to be true. He seems really sleazy, really dirty. So James Randi said, I'm on it. I'm going to catch him. So he got a team of investigators together. He sent them to a Peter Popoff healing rally. And he said, I just want you to go watch. I want you to listen. I want you to pay attention. And I want you to see what's happening. And one of them came back after the rally and said, okay, I got something kind of weird. I saw something kind of strange. Peter Popoff wears a hearing aid. That's kind of strange for a faith healer, Right? somebody that can heal people of all sorts of different things. He's like, why would this guy be wearing a hearing aid? And if he needed it, why would he wear it where other people could see him and know that he couldn't even heal himself? It seems like you'd be ratting yourself out. And Randy said, I have a hunch it's not a hearing aid. So we put another team of investigators together, and one of these guys dressed up as a security guard snuck in. There's video of this. They sneak backstage. He brings this little radio scanner doohickey thingy, and they set it up backstage, and he starts scanning the frequency, the airwaves, and he's looking for something unusual, something strange, and just right out of the gate, he finds it. The, the rally's underway, and this guy's backstage, and he finds it, and it's not a hearing aid. It's a transmitter, and on the other end of the transmitter is his wife. She's backstage, and she has the prayer cards that everyone in the room filled out before the service. I mean, when you hear it, you think, duh, no one can just tell you your address. What kind of trick is that? I mean, that's just silliness. She's got the prayer cards. You know, my name is John Doe. I have cancer. Here's my address, my phone number, my social security card, my fingerprint. I mean, all your information's right there. And so here's the way it would work. Popoff would go out for one of these healing services, his wife backstage would get the cards, and she would uh, sort of beam into his transmitter. And as they listened to them, and they're doing this sting operation, they went enough times to know that she always said the same thing first. He gets up on the stage. He's got the little piece in his ear, and his wife says this. Are you ready? She says, hello, Petey. Can you hear me? If you can't, you're in trouble. And she knew if the transmitter goes down, He's got nothing. He doesn't know anything. He has no names. He has no addresses. He doesn't know what your illness is or your sickness is or your ailment is, and you're in trouble. And so Randy gets the team together, and you know, there's no, you don't break this on social media back in the, 
in the late 80s, you go on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And so they go on The Tonight Show, and there he is, and they play the tapes, and they show the whole thing, and they just expose this guy as a complete fake and a complete, a complete fraud. <clears throat> By 1987, this guy who had been taking in millions was bankrupt, and he had 870 creditors when he filed for bankruptcy. I mean, he just a sleazebag. And I just bring that up. We're going to talk about him again in a minute, but I just bring that up so that you notice the contrast with what we're reading here. Right? The contrast between a, a quote-unquote faith healer like Peter Popoff and what Jesus is doing here in verse 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. At once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. There's nothing fake here. No smoke and mirrors. It's not dependent on this man's faith. Like that's, that's an out for Popoff and a lot of these faith, faith healers is if it doesn't come through in the end, they sort of tongue-in-cheek look at you and say, well, you should have had more faith. It's not my fault. It's your fault. If you just had a little more faith. There's none of that. Jesus doesn't need this man's faith to perform this miracle. It's free. There's no charge. There's no offering bucket pass. There's no admission charge. And it's full, and it's complete, and it's instant. This guy is healed, and he gets up. He's been down for almost four decades. He gets up, and he takes his bed, and he walks. It's very different than what you see in modern faith healers. But it's not exactly what you and I might expect from Jesus. And we just tend to read through these stories and... Maybe we're familiar with them. Maybe we don't stop and think. Maybe we don't uh, sort of turn on our, our analyzer or our critical thinking skills. But there's some things in this story that are a little bit strange. And it's the pieces of this story that stand out to me as a little bit strange that I want to talk about this morning and I want you to think about with me. And we're just going to ask some questions and try to come up with some answers. The first question is this. Why did Jesus ask this man if he wanted to be healed? John says he had been an invalid, we assume some sort of paralysis, for 38 years down on the ground. And Jesus walks up to him, and the first question he asks is, do you want to be healed? I just look at that question, and I think it's almost a cruel question. It's not, because Jesus is asking it. But on the surface, you look at it and you say, what do you think the man is going to say? Like, eh, you know, I, I've made it 38. I might as well go for an even 40. So, of course he's not going to say that. He doesn't care about rounding up to 40. He doesn't care about any kind of, you know, I've, I've been laying here longer than anyone else. I, I want the record. I'm the record holder. I mean, do you want to be healed? Of course this man wants to be healed. But he asks him the question, do you want to be healed? healed. My birthday was last Sunday, and uh, got a lot of texts, and you get all the Facebook messages and all that kind of stuff. One of the best texts, in fact, maybe the, the best text that I got was from a lady in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. Her name is Rosa Avila, and I've shared some stories about Rosa with you before. Super, super sweet lady. One of my favorite people on the whole earth. That's her with two of her kiddos, uh, Layla and Jonathan. Rosa moved to Kingfisher about the time we did. She's from Honduras, has an amazing story of how she ended up getting from Honduras to the United States. Just 
worth making a, a movie out of. And she moves to Kingfisher. She's done a number of different things in her life to own some restaurants. She's a tremendous cook, but she ends up in Kingfisher. We end up in Kingfisher. We meet. She joins our church. Just one of the greatest, nicest, most pleasant ladies I've ever been around in my life. She would go cook for our youth when we went to Falls Creek Camp. You have to bring your own cooks, and she would come cook for a super, super sweet lady. But after we had both lived in town for a while, she was driving back and forth between Kingfisher and Oklahoma City, and her white Nissan Xterra rolled, single car accident, flipped over. No one knows if she blew a tire, if it was wind, if it was something jumped out. She doesn't remember. Flipped over, and she hasn't walked since. She's been in a wheelchair ever since then. And so, you know, that's been five, six, seven, eight years And the text that she sent me last week probably, if I'm honest, took her two to three minutes to type out as she struggled with her hands and her motor skills to send me that happy birthday text. That's why I liked it more than any of the other texts I got because I know what it took for her to send it to me. I would never walk into her house and look at her and say, do you want to be healed? I know the answer to that question. I know because we've talked about it before, but I also know because it's abundantly obvious. Would you like to send text messages with ease? Would you like to get up out of that chair and walk? Would you like to get up into the kitchen and cook dinner for your family? I don't need to ask her those questions, and yet Jesus walks up to this man who's been down for 38 years, and he looks at him and he says, do you want to be healed. Scholars give you all kinds of reasons why he asked it. Here's my best crack at an answer. You can do with it what you will. Jesus cared enough about people to ask them questions and to actually listen to the answers. And I'm just stating the obvious. Jesus didn't need the information from this guy, right? He knew the answer to the question before he asked it. And absolutely nothing in what follows is dependent on this man being a willing participant. Jesus does not need this invalid to do anything in participating with his healing. He's not dependent on this man. And yet he has this question as he walks up to the guy and he asks the guy, do you want to be healed? He's willing to stop. Look at this man in the eye. Probably most people did not want to look him in the eye, right? Because you look him in the eye, you begin to have a little bit of a connection and you feel bad for him and feel like you need to say something. Most people probably thought, ah, don't make eye contact. Just like the guys out at the mall in the middle of the mall, right? Don't, don't make eye contact. Just keep walking. Then you don't have to talk to him. So most people probably wouldn't even look at this guy. But Jesus stops and he looks him in the eye and he asks him a question. It may seem like an obvious question, but he has the dignity, Jesus does, to actually listen to this man's answer. That may be the most important thing you do for somebody this week. I mean, you might do something way more important. But the most important thing you do for another person this week might simply be to look at them in the eyes and to ask them a question and then to zip it and listen to their answer. And just treat them with the dignity of being a human being. And saying to them, what you have to say matters to me. Enough that I'm not going to talk over you. And I'm just going to listen. 
Look, Jesus was always moving place to place. He was a very busy guy, but he was never in a hurry, and he had time for this man that no one else had time for. And he could have just walked up and said, get up, you're healed. He did things like that at other times. But he stops, and he asks him a question. It may seem obvious to us, but he listened to the man's answer. And he looked him in the eyes, something that this man probably hadn't experienced in decades and it might be something that you need to do for someone else this week. That may seem like a very simple thing. You may say, well, that's, that's very easy. But some of you may think you're too busy to do that. Or some of you may think you have something better to say than what someone else has to say. And what you need to do is stop, look someone in the eyes, ask them a question, and listen. Jesus did that. He cared about people. He cared enough to ask questions. He cared enough to listen to the answers. And it brings me to the second question. After he heard his answer, which was sort of a, a rambling thing about the pool and the water and people getting in before him, Jesus says, get up, take your bed, and walk. Why did he say that? Why did he tell the man, get up, take your bed, and walk? And I think the answer is in the last little phrase of verse 9 that says, that day was the Sabbath. That day was the Sabbath. Here's my answer. Jesus knew that healing... This man and the man carrying his bed on the Sabbath would violate the rules of the Jews. It wasn't going to violate the Sabbath, but it would certainly violate the rules of the Jews for this man to carry his mat and for Jesus to heal him. Let's just do a little Bible thinking here. I just want to remind you that when you read about Jesus and the conflict with the Jews, sometimes you come away saying, oh, Jesus always mad about the Sabbath. These guys are arguing about the Sabbath, the Sabbath, this Sabbath is not that big a deal. Might be how you come away thinking. The Sabbath is a big deal. It was God's idea to begin with. It's rooted in creation. You can read about that in Genesis 1, where God creates for six days, and then on the seventh day, the Bible says he rests, not because he was tired, but because he was finished with the work of creation. And it's put in the Bible, in the opening chapter of the Bible, to say this is a pattern for all human beings, that you should work and then you should rest. There should be some rhythm and some balance to your life. Work should not control your every waking, every living moment, but you should stop. This was so important that when God gave his people ten rules, this was in the top ten. Right? Number four, keep the Sabbath. When you read about it in the book of Exodus, God says, keep the Sabbath. Why? Because I did that in creation. I worked for six and then I rested for one. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a slight change. God still says, keep the Sabbath, but in Deuteronomy 5, he says, keep the Sabbath because I saved you out of Egypt to be my people. And you take Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and Genesis 1 and you kind of put them all together and you think about them and what the Bible is saying is God wants his people to work, should be people who work. He also wants us to be people who rest, who stop working from time to time. And when we stop working, we're mindful. This is who God made us to be. We're made in his image. God did this in the beginning. He is our creator and he saved us to belong to him. He redeemed us and he rescued us and he bought us with a price. The problem is, when you read the Old Testament, the Jews were never really good at keeping the Sabbath. 
In fact, they were breaking it when Moses was up on the mountain getting it. They were breaking all these commandments. And then throughout their history, they just never really did a good job. And many, many years later, when God kicked the people out of the promised land, one of the things he said is, you're being punished because you refused to keep the Sabbath. Yes, you worshiped other gods. Yes, you chased all these other deities. But you would not keep this day of rest. And he punishes the people for it. They get kicked out of the promised land. God brought them in and God kicks them out. And when they start to trickle back into the promised land, these Jews become very mindful of the Sabbath all of a sudden, right? For centuries, they ignore it. And now they say, we don't want that to happen again. So let's make sure we don't break the Sabbath. We're going to make sure we don't break it by adding some extra rules around it. And these extra rules are going to keep us from breaking the Sabbath itself. Did you know one of their rules, how can we not break the Sabbath? One of the rules of the Jews was you are not allowed to carry an item from one place to another place. You can carry an item within a place, but if you leave a place and you go to a new place and you're carrying an item, that's probably working and you can't do that. What you could do is you could tie or pin that item to your clothing in one place, then walk to the other place, and then untie it, and they said, well, you didn't carry it. That's allowed. But what you must not do is pick it up in one place, carry it to another place, and then put it down. What does Jesus tell this guy to do? Pick it up and go. Oops broke their rule. It wasn't the Sabbath itself, but it was certainly one of the rules that they had added to it. And Jesus intentionally tells this guy, pick it up and go. And he heals him on the Sabbath. We've talked about this before on a Sunday morning. One of the rules around the Sabbath involved medical care. And it went like this. If someone is dying, treat them on the Sabbath. If they'll make it one more day, let them ride it out. Can you imagine moms and band-aids and boo-boos and all that kind of stuff? Sorry, little Johnny, it's the Sabbath. I'll get you a band-aid tomorrow, but until then, I can't help you. I mean, that was the rule, and you sort of had to make a judgment call. Is this guy going to make it one more day or not? Well, what do you think about this guy? He's been there for 38 years. Surely he could make it one more day, right? Surely Jesus could just come back the next day if he doesn't want to create waves, he doesn't want to make controversy, he could just come back the next day and he could say, look, now that the Sabbath is over, why don't you go ahead and get up, leave that mat here, we don't want to, you know, let's just be, check all the boxes, make sure we're very careful, you don't need that thing anyways, been there for 38 years, it's probably nasty, so just leave it and go. And instead, it's the Sabbath day and Jesus comes to him and he looks at him and he asks him a question and he listens to the answer and then he says, get up. Take it and go. And Jesus knows that by healing this man on the Sabbath and by telling him to carry his bed from one place to another, the Jews are going to get hot. He knows it. And he's provoking these people. It's not accidental, it's intentional. Some of you who have kids or grandkids know that siblings are really good at provoking each other, right? Like we have whole, we sell products on TV and sell cars based on, you can put your kids in the back and they'll be out of arm's reach. They won't be able to poke each other and 
they'll have a screen not to bother everyone. Look how nice your family will be. We'll solve the sin problem in your kids with bucket seats. This is amazing. Buy our car. But siblings are really good at this. I remember growing up, I knew just what to say to really get under my sister's skin. I don't think she was ever as good at it with me as I was with her. Just the right thing to say to get under her skin. In our house, we have four kids, and some of them are better at it than others. But some of them really know, if I do this, it's going to spin them up. And I think that's funny, so I'm going to do it. And I want to see them. Maybe if I do it, they'll get in trouble. And there's never the thought of, if I spin them up, I'm going to get in trouble too. But they want to spin them up. And siblings know how to do this. And I'm not telling you that Jesus is just trying to aggravate the Jews. But I am telling you, he knows how to get under their skin. And he knows the buttons that he needs to push. And everything he's doing here is completely intentional. And if you don't see it in John 5, just wait till we get later in the Gospel of John. Jesus is provoking these men. He's challenging these men. And he tells this guy on the Sabbath, get up on the Sabbath, take your mat, and go. Next question is this. Why did Jesus warn the man later in the temple? Right? He heals him. Apparently, there's a lot of people there. It's a feast, so there's all sorts of crowd and commotion, and the, they get separated. The Jews see this guy walking around, and none of the Jews says, hey, congratulations. It's been a, a run of 38 years you've been on that mat, and you're finally up walking around. We're really glad to see it. Instead, they say, you know it's the Sabbath. You can't carry that thing. You can't be healed on the Sabbath. Don't you know it's the Sabbath? Jesus finds him later. Look what we read in verse 14. Jesus afterward found him in the temple, and he said, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. When I study, I try to read Bible scholars that I know I'm going to agree with and that I know I'm going to disagree with. I want to think about what all these guys have to say about the text. And i got to tell you, that verse, verse 14, really goes all over some Bible scholars. I mean, it just gets them hot. And they say, who does Jesus think he is to say something like that? Find this guy and to say to him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Does Jesus think that every time we get sick, it's because we sinned? Isn't that the mistake of Job's buddies who show up and all they have to say to Job is, repent, repent, repent. You did something wrong. Shame on you. If you just get it right with God, then all this suffering would go away. Is, is that what Jesus is saying here? And they just get all riled up. But i got to be honest with you. Jesus isn't saying any of that. He is giving the man a warning, and it is a very, very serious warning. Here's the warning. Jesus wanted the man to realize there was a worse fate than laying paralyzed on a mat for 38 years. There is something worse than what the man had just experienced. And Jesus was not saying, look, if you sin one more time, God's going to send you back on your mat. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is, if you continue in unrepentant sin, you'll spend eternity in hell. And I assure you, that's far worse than being on a mat for 38 years. You need to deal with the sin in your life. This is a warning for the man, and it's a warning for us. It's maybe the most frightening part of the whole passage. Listen to me. Listen. Jesus is telling this man, you just got everything you wanted. And it may be the worst thing that ever happens to you. 
All your prayers may have just been answered, and you still may spend eternity separated from God in hell. You realize that's a possibility in your life? It's a possibility that you could get everything you ever wanted in life, and you could still miss Jesus. I pray that's not true for you. I pray it's not true for me. That you get everything you've ever prayed for, everything you've ever asked for, everything you ever hoped for, everything you ever wished for, and you miss Jesus, and you spend eternity separated from the Father. And Jesus says to this guy, there's sin in your life, and you need to deal with it. Because if you don't, there is a worse fate than laying on a mat for four decades. Beware of that. He warns the man. He's warning us. The last question that I want to ask is this. Why didn't Jesus argue with the Jews about their Sabbath rules? Why didn't he just go to them and say, you guys have missed it here. Let me reason with you. Let me be rational with you about this rule about medical care, this, how silly this rule is about carrying one thing from one place to another. He, does, he doesn't do that here. In other places, he sort of broaches those subjects. But here, he does none of that. All he wants to say is, you need to know who I am and why I came. And so here's the answer. Why didn't Jesus argue with the Jews about their Sabbath rules? He wanted them to understand, if God the Father was not bound by the Sabbath, neither was God the Son. And this really went all over these guys. I mean, this is the part that really got them fired up. Look at John 5, verse 17. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. The Father's working, right? He's finished the work of creation, but He's not taking days off. He is upholding the universe. He is sustaining everything that he has made. The sun and the moon and the planets, they're all circling in orbit because God in his sovereignty and his power is holding all of it in place. He's holding you together by his power. He's sustaining everything that he made. Thank God he doesn't take days off. He works even on the Sabbath. Jesus says, my father is working today. It's a day of rest for you, but he's working. He's upholding his creation. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, if the father's working, I just want you to understand the son is going to work too. And he doesn't say your Sabbath rules are silly. And he doesn't say the Sabbath is unimportant. Essentially what he's saying is the Sabbath doesn't apply to me because I'm not like you. You're a creature. The Sabbath is for creatures. You work and then you rest. I'm the creator and I don't take days off. It may be hard for us to see what Jesus is arguing, but it wasn't hard for the Jews. Verse 18 explains it. This is why they were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was breaking their Sabbath rules, but he was even calling God his own father. And in their minds, they understood the logic. He was making himself equal with God. Here's the conflict. Jesus walks in and he sees a man who needs to be healed. It's the Sabbath. He not only heals him on the Sabbath when he could have waited to the next day, but he tells him to get up, take his mat, and carry it, breaking their Sabbath tradition. He's provoking a conflict. 
And he knows that these guys are going to be outraged. And when they get mad that you did this on the Sabbath and he carried his bed on the Sabbath, Jesus doesn't try to pour cold water on the whole thing and bring the temperature down in the room. He ups the ante. And he says, let me tell you where you've gone off base here. If the Father works on the Sabbath, I'm going to work on the Sabbath. Because I'm the Word who was in the beginning with the Father who created everything that existed. I made the Sabbath rule, is what Jesus is telling these men. I'm the one who gave you that rule. And the Father's going to work, and I'm going to work. John 5.18 is John's first reference to the plot to kill Jesus. All the introductions are past. All the beginning things are past. We're really moving to the climax of the book already in John 5. This is why John wrote the book, to get to the cross. And already in John 5, he's telling you how we got there. Jesus intentionally healed this man on the Sabbath, provoking the Jews. He told them to their face, I get to work on the Sabbath because I'm equal with the Father. And John says from this moment forward, they're looking for an opportunity. They're seeking all the more to kill him. Peter Popoff, we left off at bankruptcy, right? 1987. He made a comeback. In the 90s, in the early 2000s, he started buying late-night infomercial time. And in his infomercials, he was selling, and last time I checked earlier this week, I think you can still buy it, Miracle Spring Water. And it will heal you from this and heal you from that. You say, well, how much could a guy make selling Miracle Spring Water in 2005, he made $23 million selling Miracle Spring Water. In 2006, he decided to become a tax-exempt organization so that he wouldn't have to report his income or pay taxes on his income. So who knows what he made past that. I just want you to note how different the ending of Popoff's story is to our story. And I'm just going to jump ahead. I'm going to steal my own thunder from John chapter 10. It's going to be a while till we get there, so I'm just going to go to John 10 this morning. John 10, Jesus looks at his disciples. He's close to crucifixion, and he starts to call himself the good shepherd. And he contrasts the good shepherd with the hired hand. He says, the hired hand cares nothing for the sheep. The hired hand is in it for a paycheck. The hired hand doesn't shepherd the flock. The hired hand fleeces the flock. And it's obvious to anyone with eyes to see that Popoff is a hired hand. He does not care for the sheep. And the contrast with a guy like Popoff is certainly not a guy like me. It's Jesus, the good shepherd. Not only does he care for his sheep, but he says in John 10, I came to lay my life down for the sheep. No one is taking it from me, but I'm laying it down of my own accord. This is my plan. And I think that's helpful when you read John 5, and Jesus is sort of stirring this controversy, and John says the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. I don't want you to look at John 5, 18 and say, oh, poor Jesus, poor misunderstood Jesus. He's just trying to help the guy. He's just trying to teach the truth. He can't catch a break. These guys are coming after him. That's not what he wanted. That's exactly 
what he wanted. He's not a hired hand. He's the good shepherd. And the good shepherd came and took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And the creator entered creation for one reason. And that reason was not just to tell us nice stories, not just to heal guys who'd been laying on a bed for 38 years. But that one ultimate most serious reason was that he would lay his life down for you. And he assures his followers, no one's going to take it from me. I'm sort of poking the bear here. I'm sort of stirring the pot. I'm sort of challenging these guys on their own turf. Let's just be clear about one thing. They are not taking my life. I'm laying it down. And I'm going to take it back up again when I'm finished, when my work is complete. I have this charge from the Father. This was the work that he came to do.